Good evening, everyone. My name is Daffy. I'm one of the ministry associates training here at Chamas Church. It's lovely to see you all this evening. Tonight, we're on familiar ground again for most of us as we continue to work through the passion narrative of Jesus as recorded to us by Matthew. And it's good to remember as we read this, this kind of well-known story tonight, that through it, Matthew is trying to teach us something about salvation. He's trying to teach us something about salvation and what it entails. It's not just a story, but it paints for us a picture of the theological implications of the cross. And it explains to us how exactly it is that God is going to do what he had promised to do, which is to save the world. Last week, we learned about a certain aspect of the salvation. We learned that for it to be possible for us to drink the cup of forgiveness, Jesus must first drink the cup of God's wrath. He must receive the godly punishment our sins deserved. And we saw how how agonizing and how difficult that was for Jesus. And yet he carried on in love and in sacrifice for those, um, for us, who could not have helped ourselves. And this week, we're going to see another aspect of salvation that Matthew wants us to learn. We're going to see the innocent King Jesus stepping into the place of the guilty. And we'll note that this was always how God was going to achieve his grand plan of salvation. And also, very interestingly, like before with the disciples, we're going to explore the human reactions that surround this characteristic of salvation, and we'll arrive at A very simple, yet powerful truth, I think. And it's something that we've all experienced. It's something that we see around the world today, every day. We're going to see how this innocent blood of King Jesus really splits the world in half and its rejection and its acceptance of it. So let me read it for us. Matthew chapter 27 Verses 1 to 26, that's in page um, 833 of the Black Church Bibles, if you've got that. Matthew 27, verses 1 to 26. When morning came, all the chief priests and the elders of the people took counsel against Jesus to put him to death. And they bound him and led him away and delivered him over to Pilate the governor. Then when Judas, his betrayer, saw that Jesus was condemned, he changed his mind and brought back the 30 pieces of silver to the chief priests and the elders, saying, I have sinned by betraying innocent blood. They said, what is that to us? See to it yourself. And throwing down the 30 pieces of silver into the temple, he departed, and he went and hanged himself. But the chief priest, taking the pieces of silver, said, It is not lawful to put them into the treasury, since it is blood money. So they took counsel and bought with them the potter's field as a burial place for strangers. Therefore, that field has been called the field of blood to this day. Then was fulfilled what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field. As the Lord had directed me. Now Jesus stood before the governor, and the governor asked him, 
Are you the king of the Jews? Jesus said, you have said so. But when he was accused by the chief priests and the elders, he gave no answer. Then Pilate said to him, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? But he gave him no answer, not even to a single charge, so that the governor was greatly amazed. Now at the feast, the governor was accustomed to release for the crowd any one prisoner whom they wanted. And they had then a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, Whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? For he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. Besides, while he was sitting on the judgment seat, his wife sent word to him, Have nothing to do with that righteous man, for I have suffered much because of him today in a dream. Now the chief priests and the elders persuaded the crowd to ask for Barabbas and destroy Jesus. The governor again said to them, Which of the two do you want me to release for you? And they said, Barabbas. Pilate said to them, Then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? And they all said, Let him be crucified. And he said, Why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, Let him be crucified. So when Pilate saw that he was gaining nothing, but rather that a riot was beginning, he took water and washed his hands before the crowd, saying, I am innocent of this man's blood. See to it yourselves. And all the people answered, His blood be on us and on our children. Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Let me pray and ask for God's help as we read this. Father, we pray that you help us to grasp the truths of your word. We pray that you would help our hearts to be warmed and our affections to be raised towards you, our Savior, tonight. In Jesus' name, amen. So on to the first point on your service sheets. You should have them inside your Bible. The cross is the fulfillment of God's plan. I don't know if you uh, remember back when we had our very first sermon on Matthew that Andy preached when we were still at Pollock. I know it seems like a lifetime ago now that we're in this new building, but he got us to imagine Matthew sat at his desk with a mission from God to tell the world the gospel. And he was sat there and he had his Old Testament open next to him And he was thinking back on his time with Jesus and what he'd seen and what he'd heard. And as he did so, multiple light bulbs were going off in his head all the time as he was finding correspondences between absolutely everything that Jesus did and everything that Jesus said and the Old Testament. Not only what Jesus did and said, but all the events surrounding his life, even what other people did. And I think think that it helps us to have that in our heads as we read this kind of strange account of Judas and the chief priests. None of the other gospel writers record this. Only Matthew does. And we see that Jesus has been delivered to Pilate in verse 2, but then we cut away to a completely different story. And it's good to ask the question, why do you think that is? What could Matthew possibly want to convey from this? Well, I think the answer is found in verse 9. Then was fulfilled 
what had been spoken by the prophet Jeremiah, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the price of him on whom a price had had been set by some of the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field, as the Lord directed me. You see this, this strange cutaway that Matthew puts in for us? It's a fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. It was always going to happen. So let's try to get our heads around this, see if we can unpack it a little bit. Verses 3 to 8, Judas, overcome with guilt, after betraying Jesus, he runs back to the temple and pleads with the priests and the elders to take back the blood money, to take back the symbol of his betrayal. And the chief priests basically say to him, well, that's, that's your problem, mate. We don't really care if you feel bad. And so Judas, being unable to hold on to that money any further... He throws it into the temple and he runs away and he hangs himself. And then the chief priest decided that it wouldn't be good for them to accept this blood money into the temple treasury, which is very interesting. What does that say about what they thought they were doing with Jesus? And we'll come back to that later on. So they take the money and they buy a potter's field, which is literally the field of a clay pot maker who probably worked for the temple. They buy that field for burying foreigners in. Because that's the obvious thing to do with blood money, isn't it? It's not, but they did it. Why? Matthew looks at all of this, and he's convinced that this set of events is telling us something about the cross. And it's telling us something about the cross through the Old Testament. He's got it open next to him, remember. Specifically, he says, Jeremiah. But then we come to a slight problem because the quotation that Matthew writes down from us isn't from Jeremiah, but rather from Zechariah. Well, what's he done that for? I screamed at my Bible Monday through Friday. It's good for us to understand, I think, that it was acceptable for teachers back in those days to gather a few quotes together from the Old Testament to summarize a bigger point that they were trying to make without having to have a big list of individual quotations. And I think that's what Matthew's doing. All that means is that there's a big theme in Jeremiah that's reflected specifically in that bit of Zechariah. And Matthew wants us to read that quotation. He wants us to think of Jeremiah and Zechariah. He wants us to go, ah, of course, which I'm sure is... What happened in all your heads as we read that? Yes, absolutely. For those of us who are not Old Testament scholars, let me try to unpack what Matthew is trying to highlight for us. The quote is directly from Zechariah 11. And in that chapter of Zechariah, we read that Zechariah has been called by God to care for his sheep, the people of Israel, as a good shepherd. But after a while... They detested him, and they detested what Zechariah stood for. And so Zechariah became sick of them, and he decided to leave. And as he does so, he breaks the staff of union. And it's a staff which represented the covenant God had made between himself and his people, which is a massive deal. And he says to them, after he's done this quite sarcastically, he says, if it seems good to you, give me my wages. But if not, keep them. And the people of God weigh up how much they think this shepherd of God is worth. 
And how much do you think they paid Zechariah off for? 30 pieces of silver. And you're supposed to read that, and you're supposed to react to the sheer arrogance, the condescension of these people towards God. It's incredible. They completely disregard God's kindness and love towards them. How self-righteous they are. How self-reliant they want to be. They want nothing to do with God. They want to do their own thing. And they shun God's goodness and care towards them. And you completely sympathize with God's indignation towards them. So God says to Zechariah, he says, Take that money, the price at which I was priced by them, and throw it into the temple. Throw it to the potter, which is the clay pot maker of the temple. And after this, God names them the flock doomed to slaughter, as they will no longer be under his shepherding, but under the worthless shepherd, who will not care or heal, but will destroy them. See, God decides he will give the ungrateful flock what they deserve. And the big connection with Jeremiah is found in chapters 18 and 19, where we read that Jeremiah is told to go to the potter's house to buy a pot of clay and to take it to a valley in front of the elders and the priests and smash it as a sign of God's final and irreparable judgment that was to fall on them for their idol worship and their spilling of innocent blood to other gods. The point is, just like a pot cannot be remade after it has been smashed, so shall be this punishment from the Lord. They will receive what they deserve. Can you see what Matthew's trying to highlight? The common thread in these passages is that the people have rejected God, and specifically his messenger in Zechariah and Jeremiah, and thus God has rejected them. That's the point Matthew's trying to make with this recounting of of Judah's suicide and the throwing of the 30 pieces of silver back into the temple. The point is, to reject Jesus the king is to pronounce judgment upon your head. To pay God off like the ungrateful flock of Zechariah and the chief priests means that you're guilty of rejecting God's messenger. And what happens when you do so? Well, the pot will be smashed. God will be good, and he'll be just, which means he cannot relent from his punishment forever. My justice will fall on the guilty. That's what God says. That's what Matthew wants us to have in our heads. And who are the guilty? Well, as we read this passage, as we see from the chief priests and Judas and Pilate and the crowd, the guilty are those who betray the innocent blood of Christ by rejecting it. That's what Matthew wants us to have in our heads as we read what happens to Jesus next. And surely we look within ourselves as Christians, or perhaps not as Christians, and we see this sin and this rejection of God within our hearts. We look at the world and we see how, as a whole, so many of us want nothing to do with God and would gladly pay him off to be done with him and to be left alone to our own lives. This kind of self-affirmation, these attempts at living 
autonomously from God is something that we do all the time, something that we do every day. We don't want God's care over us because it means hard work. It means care for others. It means mortification of sin. It means giving up comforts. We know as Christians in our heads that a godly life is the best way to live, but we struggle to believe it. We've been studying um, the Sermon on the Mount in our evening series, and we sit here and we learn about the sexual immorality that's rife within us, the greediness, the lack of love. And we all nod our heads and we know that it's right to fight those things and to do so is the best way to live. But then we get home and we put our feet up in front of the TV. What do we do? We feel that snag that we naturally pull towards keeping our money, comfort, towards lust, towards selfishness. And we reject Jesus and his teaching. And in effect, we say to God, I know what you say is true, but I think you're wrong. Every day. Well, we as a people have rejected God. We are guilty. We have blood on our hands. And what does God have a right to do? Punish. It's a tough truth. And it seems bleak doesn't it? We are helpless against the Holy God. And the question we're left asking is, how? How will God enact his justice against sin and still provide salvation for humanity when it's so blatant in its rejection of him? Jesus. Jesus will take my guilty place. The messenger himself. And so on to the next point in our sheets, that innocent king will take the place of the guilty. Look at the exchange that he has with the chief priests and the Pharisees in verses 11 to 14. Pilate questions him about his kingship, which is the big theme in Matthew. Remember, the king has arrived, and Jesus affirms this. He says, you're right. And the chief priests still continue to rattle on in his ear with all kinds of accusations, And he says nothing. And you're reading this, and you're thinking, come on, Jesus, you know so much more than them. Why are you silent? You're so much more powerful than them. These cowards that want you dead from jealousy, bring down the punishment that you promised in the Old Testament. Stop this travesty. And it seems that Pilate can hear us, doesn't it? Because he basically says that. In verse 18, we read that he knew that it was out of envy that they had delivered him up. And he's giving Jesus every chance to get out of this. And so he asked Jesus, do you not hear how many things they testify against you? What Pilate's really saying is, it's obvious that these guys are twisted. The injustice is clear. It's obvious you're innocent and perfectly capable of defending yourself. Say something. But Jesus remained silent. Why? Why not just end this atrocity now in some powerful display? Here's the answer. And it's it's linked to what we've been talking about. Jesus is set on fulfilling God's promise. Isaiah 57, 53 verse 7 says, He was oppressed and he was afflicted. 
yet he opened not his mouth. Like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. In the same way, the chief priests fulfill the Old Testament and show us the guiltiness of humanity before God, the Old Testament also predicts what the Savior will be like. And we see in, these, in this one of the most famous passages of that sort, Isaiah 53, we see that Jesus is exactly like that promised Savior. Jesus, in his silence, is fulfilling the way in which we are saved. He is ensuring that God's salvation plan still stands. But how, how does that work exactly? How does Jesus' silence achieve this? Well, who is the other major character in this story? Not the chief priests, not Judas, not Pilate, but Barabbas. We see the notorious prisoner, the epitome of that Old Testament rejection of God, the guilty criminal who was about to get what he deserved. And what happened? Verse 16, then they had a notorious prisoner called Barabbas. So when they had gathered, Pilate said to them, whom do you want me to release for you, Barabbas or Jesus, who is called Christ? Verse 22, Pilate said to them, then what shall I do with Jesus, who is called Christ? They said, let him be crucified. And he said, why? What evil has he done? But they shouted all the more, let him be crucified. And finally, verse 26, what happened? Then he released for them Barabbas, and having scourged Jesus, delivered him to be crucified. Imagine this exchange between Jesus and Barabbas. And we don't know how much Barabbas knew of Jesus or who he was exactly, but can you imagine how he was feeling? He gets to walk away from his cross, a free man, all because of Jesus' silent resolution to go to the cross and fulfill God's plan. We get so little information about Barabbas, but I think that's the point. I think we're supposed to be able to substitute anyone into his shoes. His name literally just means son of man. He could be anyone. And this is one of the characteristics of our salvation. Jesus is our substitute. In Jesus, willingly and powerfully and silently stepping into the place of guilty Barabbas, we see God stepping into our guilty place. What we're seeing here is the way in which God will enact his justice. He does it in a way where his steadfast love and his promise, promise of salvation will remain intact. He takes it upon himself. The innocent king will shed his blood for the guilty, and God will remain just and good. This is astonishing. Do you not feel the weight of this, the travesty of this heinous, wicked betrayal of the God-given shepherd who attempted to lead his people but instead ends up suffering at their hands? The betrayal of one who was innocent and completely undeserving of this kind of treatment. Do you see how outrageous it is that God does this? 
that he steps into my guilty place, into your guilty place. This is a God who is willing to pay an enormous price for the salvation of guilty sinners. And you're almost left thinking, God, if you had not placed Jesus in my place, I'd completely understand. You would have been right to do so. But he does. For the sake of his glory and our salvation, because he takes his promises seriously and he loves you. Praise the Lord that Christ was silent as the chief priest spat on his face and screamed blasphemy at the king of all the earth, at the good shepherd who came to heal and care for his sheep. And praise the Lord that he remained perfect, that he remained silent and thought it good to obey the will of the Father and to take your guilty place. Be glad. This is the God who cared for you then and still cares for you now. His love is steadfast. Look at what he did for you. And finally, on to the last point on your sheets. How do we react to this? Well, throughout this passage, we've seen the different reactions people had to the innocent blood of Jesus. And I think the really representative of humanity's attitude towards Jesus. But before we get there, I want to address um, a thought that you perhaps might be having right now. Um, You might be a Christian here tonight thinking, well, I haven't rejected the blood of Christ, so I'm fine. This doesn't, doesn't apply to me. Well, you did at one time. It's for those... In that crowd, it's for the chief priests, it's for the ungrateful flock of Zechariah, it's for the idolatrous worshippers of Jeremiah, it's for you and your lust and your hate and your shame that Christ was silent and as a lamb led to the slaughter, spotless and clean and completely innocent, took your guilty place. Be grateful and glad and praise him who saved you. God does not enact his punishment on those deserving of it because Jesus died for you. Be grateful, praise, and rejoice, and worship him who takes the punishment meant for me and meant for you. And perhaps you're sitting here tonight and you're not a Christian. Well, hear me out. Don't don't dismiss this as a story for some people some time ago. Do not reject the innocent blood of Christ, lest you remain guilty. Those who reject the innocent blood of Christ will receive what they deserve, that is, hell. Do not take part in such an atrocity, such a betrayal, Don't hate him like the chief priests. They knew what they were doing was wrong. They knew that this blood money wasn't acceptable to have been used on the temple's behalf. And yet they could not accept the truth that Jesus proclaimed, that he was the king. It exposed darkness within them and they hated him for it. 
Don't do that. Don't think like Judas, that you're beyond the reach of his grace. Don't revel in remorse, but accept and repent. The price has been paid for you. Peter's betrayal, we read just before, was just as bad, and yet we see later on Jesus revealed to him and him preaching the gospel. Peter repented. He knew there was hope in Jesus, and we see clearly today what that hope is. Don't, like the crowd, just go along with the flow. Don't be persuaded of standing in opposition to Christ. Consider him very carefully. Ignorance will not be an excuse. And finally, and perhaps the one we're in most danger of doing, do not humor him like Pilate. Don't look at his life. Don't see the truth of it. Don't begin to feel it affect your heart and your life. And for the sake of comfort, and for the sake of conformity, wash your hands of him and reject him. Pilate calls him king three times in this passage and is still more concerned with himself than the universal royalty before him. It's not worth it. You cannot be indifferent to the innocent blood of Christ. It does apply, and it must be received or rejected. It's universal, and it's true for all time and for all people. Has Christ taken your guilty place? If not, you receive what you deserve. These are all different manners of rejections, but they're still all ultimately rejections. The question is, who do we want to be in this story? We don't want to be Pilate or the chief priests or Judas or the crowd. We want to be Barabbas. We want to be the one who at no effort of his own gets to walk free from the punishment destined to him. So the question still is, has Christ taken your guilty place? The blood of Jesus, it cries out for a response. It splits the world in half. You can't be indifferent to it. It does apply and it must be received or rejected. Do we say to God tonight, I need Jesus. I'm guilty of rejecting you. And I need your representative to take my place. That's my hope. That's my only hope. That's your only hope. That's our only hope. And thank God that it's true. That he will step into your place. Wherever you are, whoever you are, he will save you. Let's pray together. Father, thank you that you have provided the greatest hope for those who reject you. Help us to see that clearly. Help us to feel that deeply. Help us to love you and praise you 
for taking our place. Father, please remind us that there is no greater honor, there is nothing more humbling than being a follower of Jesus. Father, if we're here tonight and we don't know you yet, we pray that we would see our need for a savior, for a substitute. That we are guilty, but you are good and you are merciful and you will step into our guilty place. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.